Now that the House has returned, Congress this week makes the final push to do, well, exactly what? Before the fiscal year expires in a couple of weeks, we get the play-by-play from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. All right, so both chambers are now officially back in town. The fiscal year is over in two weeks. There's several scenarios here, huh? There are a lot of scenarios, uh, some of them not so good, including the possibility of yet another uh, government shutdown. So what is happening today is the Senate is rolling out the old minibus and trying to get it in the legislative road, trying to basically package three major appropriations bills, including Veterans Affairs, HUD, and other agencies, and trying to get this package of legislative bills, three appropriations bills passed, they'll have a big amendment process and they're trying to get back to regular order, which they haven't done in a long time. And really what they're trying to do is get ahead of the House, the House now just getting ready to convene. And they both have very, very different priorities. The House, as we've talked about over the last several months, uh, many conservatives saying they are not going to go to the spending levels that uh, Democrats and Republicans in the Senate have tentatively agreed to. So I think we're looking at a uh, major clash between the two chambers coming up. We'll get the first chapter of all of this uh, this week as the Senate moves ahead on these spending bills, as I mentioned. And then we'll have to see where the House is going. What is a House Speaker Kevin McCarthy going to do? He has signaled that he wants to go to a short-term spending bill, a, a continuing resolution with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. However, many of these members within his conference don't want to do that and have, ha- and have actually spoken openly about the fact that they wouldn't mind a government shutdown. So it's going to be really interesting to see the clash between these two chambers. So potentially, Kevin McCarthy could get enough votes using Democrats and some Republicans to go along with the Senate approach of a short-term CR, but ironically— he could lose the speakership over that. Right. They could, because of when he had all those series of votes to eventually become the House Speaker, uh, they did include that provision to vacate the chair. And that has been mentioned a few times by some of these more conservative members of his conference that if they don't like the way things are going, they are holding out that threat. And that was always a worry among more moderate Republicans in the House that that could happen. So we'll have to see how hard the House Freedom Caucus really pushes. Sometimes they make a lot of noise and then they back off at the last minute. Uh, Right now, what it looks like is that if there's enough Democratic support in the House to get a short-term measure passed, it would probably go through early November is what they're talking about right now. But again, there's that threat. If uh, they don't go along with it or the Democrats don't give enough votes to uh, Speaker McCarthy on the other side of the aisle, uh, that they could potentially have some type of a shutdown in the coming weeks or months. And then we'll have to see what happens if they do pass the short-term measure. Measure. Of course, that's just a kick the can down the road type of scenario where they're still going to have to reconcile whatever the Senate and whatever the House ultimately does. And right now they are very far apart. And kind of like someone playing a piccolo walking by the edge of a great tank battle, <laughs> you have this bill from Virginia Representative Don Beyer and Virginia Senator Tim Kaine that would prevent shutdowns by having an automatic CR when these situations happen. But Again, that's sort of like the little flute music at the side of the battle. 
not much going to happen from it. Kind of one of those, wouldn't it be pretty to think so scenarios. Uh, we do see these types of bills introduced anytime there is rumor or discussion about the fact that there could be a government shutdown. Uh, Virginia Senator uh, Mark Warner several years ago uh, introduced a similar measure. Other lawmakers have as well. This one is pretty simple, though. It does have uh, its merits for sure. It, it Essentially, it's just called the End Shutdowns Act, and it would automatically kick in a continuing resolution on October 1st, the start of the fiscal year, if Congress cannot reach an agreement on appropriations. And as these proposals go, this is one of the more straightforward ones that I've seen. Again, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. They're always well-intentioned. There's always talk about the fact that nobody wants a shutdown, and that's certainly the case in the Senate. The Senate Democrats and Republicans have repeatedly stated during this past week when they first got back that they don't want a shutdown. But of course, as I alluded to, there's some others on the other side in the House that uh, think that that would be okay. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And I want to switch topics here for a moment. The return to the office for the federal workforce, that is still an ongoing topic of concern for at least some members of Congress. And earlier, one of the influential senators had a lot to say about it. Right. This was really interesting because uh, the Republican leadership, as you know, comes out after their weekly luncheon and they talk about their various priorities. And this is not a topic that generally comes up during those type of news conferences. It usually comes up in committee, but uh, Republican senators. Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa was very forceful in her comments related to the fact that she thinks that federal workers are not and federal agencies are not doing enough to get back into the office. Uh, she says that she thinks that the government is wasting a lot of money right now because a lot of these offices are not full. And then she also made a charge that some federal workers are teleworking and essentially getting extra money by not uh, actually coming into the city where they are supposed to be, in this case, Washington, D.C., and this is what she had to say. How many of them moved away during COVID and are still getting paid for living in Washington, D.C.? It is fraud, folks. It's fraud. So you federal employees that are out there, we're coming after you. Now, she didn't actually say how many of these people this allegedly is going on with, but this was clearly a warning. And uh, we're hearing more and more of this from Republicans that they really want something more done by the federal agencies to get people back into the office. Holy corn crib. Her being from Iowa, she could be coming with a pitchfork for all we know. <laughs> That's right. Wow. Yeah, that is very strong language. Have not heard quite anything like that. And while we have you also... Uh, the uh, idea of just the aging of Congress, and I only ask this in the context of the bigger question in the country over the putative presidential candidates, both being elderly men, we see votes in Congress possibly affected their outcomes by the age of some of the senators. Right. And of course, this really uh, came under the uh, spotlight with what's happening with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. He is back. He's getting well wishes from everyone after yet another incident where he essentially just froze up while he was speaking to reporters when he was in Kentucky. And he has gotten an OK from the uh, Capitol physician. Basically, they're saying that there were no seizures, no strokes, but it really has caused a big bug 
buzz on Capitol Hill about this age issue. You know, Senator McConnell is 81. His physical deterioration, if you will, has been pretty marked over the last six months, ever since he had a concussion and had a fall earlier this year. He really, for obvious reasons, doesn't want to publicly talk about it. But he did state last week uh, very firmly that he does intend to serve his term as leader of the GOP, as well as through the end of his term, which would be ending in 2027. So right now he's 81 years old. Interestingly enough, another development last Friday, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who is now 83, surprised some people by saying that she will run again for re-election uh, next year. So that could potentially, if she's re-elected, make her 85. And of course, we've talked about California Senator Dianne Feinstein, who has had health problems, who is 90. Senator Chuck Grassley is 89. I think we're just going to continue to see a lot of attention on the age issue. Obviously, people are living longer, and some of them are much healthier when they live longer uh, than others. Senator Grassley, for example, has been in pretty good health most of the time, and, and so has House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. But as we have seen with Senate Minority Leader McConnell, it only takes one unfortunate incident, and then things can change pretty radically. Yeah, I've got this vision of brains in saline bubble jars <laughs> with wires coming in and out and current going in, and they live on forever because the brain is kept alive and the body's been discarded. Actually, the wiring is just attached to their staff. Yeah, that's right. So the staff, when the staff gets to be 85, then we're really in trouble. I guess so, right. Never a dull moment. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. 
Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have, we rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. 
And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief, and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. 
Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.